Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and today I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Doherty. Thomas is a credentialed health service psychologist in the Portland, Oregon area. In his private practice, Sustainable Self, he focuses on clients' connections to environment and nature. Thomas is a fellow of the American Psychological Association and past president of the Society for Environmental, Population, and Conservation Psychology. His work has been featured in American Psychologist and Prevention Magazine, and he served as a member of the APA's task force on the interface between psychology and global climate change. And not only that, in the last few weeks, a major profile has come out from the New York Times, including his work. It's called Climate Change Enters the Therapy Room. It is definitely worth a read. And for you podcast lovers, he even has a new show called Climate Change and Happiness, which focuses on resilience and well-being amidst this time of climate crisis. Thomas, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, Sam. I'm really glad to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Thomas, I, I want to jump right in. I feel like we could talk about so many different things today, and we just have a little bit of time with you. And so I want to acknowledge that, you know, here we are in February recording this episode. There have been winter storms across this country yeah, on, in the Pacific Northwest, where we both are. There have been strange freezes and record lows and highs at the same time throughout this season. Freezes in warmer areas, unseasonably warm days in the north. And I, as a new parent, and as we talk about this, this topic of climate crisis, I got to say, this is daunting. Daunting not only for me, but also thinking about what this means for generations to come. My own child, for instance. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and frankly, that feels scary. And it brings mm -hmm. me to you. It brings me to you today for our podcast episode, because... Your work in this field has been deeply influential, and I'm really curious to hear more about what this, what is environmental psychology? What is eco-psychology? What is eco-anxiety? I'm hearing all of these terms, even as I read the, the article in the New York Times, and I'm thinking, I need somebody to help break these down. What does this all mean? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. It's something to kind of... Um... It's yeah, it's something to ease into because it's a big, um, <laughs> it's a big topic. When I used to do wilderness therapy, I mean, one of one of the influences on my work is I used to do outdoor therapy and be, before I became a psychologist. And uh, um, you know, the there's an old saying in first in first aid for backcountry first aid. You know, stop, survey the scene, don't create another victim, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a great general saying for intervening in all kinds of things. You know, and so we want to kind of ease into the scene. There's a bit of a, there's kind of a, well, one way, you know, if I, when I step back and I try to orient myself to this work, even when I'm talking to someone individually, I, I have some general frameworks that I remind myself about. And one is, you know, I think there's three basic tasks when we're dealing with these environmental issues. And um, there's the emotional task, how do we feel mm -hmm. about it? There's a descriptive task. 
you know, what is it? How do we understand it? And then there's a prescriptive task, you know, what should we do about it? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, um, in our common, in our world, particularly when we get into science, psychological science, um, and in policy and to a certain extent in the media, um, people focus on the latter too. Like, what is this? How do we understand mm-hmm. it? And what should we do? And they go, they want to go into action because they're mobilized mm-hmm. and they're, and they're stressed and they're alarmed. But I really think it's important to, at the outset, spend, a, spend some time on the emotional task. You know, mm-hmm. what does it, how does it, how do you feel about this? What's going on? It's, so it, it brings it into our personal lives, just like you're doing right now. It brings it right into our personal life. And, um, you know, sometimes that's a little bit of a challenge, particularly if people are really science-based, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. not traditionally, you know, what's talked about in scientific discourse is people's subjective feelings. But I, I think if we don't get that out first, it's bubbling up in other yeah. ways. And so when I start to think about something like eco-anxiety, for example, I see that as an emotional response that's kind of bubbling up in the, in the kind of up through the cracks of our, of our discourse in society because a lot of it's focused on data and IPCC reports and, and, you know, um, and then, oh, we have to take action. I have to be more of a better, you know, sustainability person and all this sort of stuff, all, mm-hmm. all important things. But again, giving some time for the emotion, you know, and, you know, I'm doing a training group with, with counselors and, and psychologists around so-called climate conscious therapy or, you know, ecotherapy. And, you know, I really tell people that value, that, 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 that validation is, is very valuable in and of itself mm-hmm. without, without being an expert on everything, without knowing all the data, without, you know, knowing all the, you know, climatology and all this sort of stuff, or being an expert on you know, alternative economic modes that sure. are carbon, you know, carbon sequestration and all these cool things to learn about just, you know, as, as like psychologists and particularly people doing any kind of therapy, just that, you know, validation, or mm-hmm. I say validate, elevate, create, you know, validate people's feelings, elevated, like this is important. And then right. let's get creative about it. And then that, I think that centers people a little bit and, gets them to slow down. And, you know, part of this is just getting our stress response mm-hmm. back down a little bit. So we have a little more creativity, a little more open-mindedness. And then, you know, we can, you know, it's iterative. Then we cycle back to these questions like, oh, what is climate change? What does it mean to me? Like, what is eco-anxiety? So anyway, that that's a good place there. The emotion, you know, the emotional task and that New York Times story that you referenced recently that, that you referenced that came out recently was a great story but it, it and it did a great job on the emotional task it really just how this was feeling for people right i mean i actually talked to the journalist about many other things in that story that didn't make it i know she she had a larger vision for that story as well and so i talked about psychology and my influences and behavior change and empowerment and all this sort of stuff but you know they 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 did do a good job bringing the emotion piece out and i think that's what really hit hit a chord for people when you when you create the space to first reflect on the emotions that are coming up what do people tend to share what tends to come up Mm -hmm. yeah i think um well um yeah, that's a good question. I think you did a good job, again, illustrating it yourself. You, you went mm-hmm. to your personal life. You went, you know, I mean, often people will come to their family. If they're yeah. parents, I would say 99% of the time they're going to come to their family or their children. 
because so much of um, the, the, you know, the angst about environmental issues and climate change is concerns about future changes. I mean, anxiety itself, right, is a, is a normal emotion yeah. apprehension apprehension about some potential future threat or, or fear in a cloud is what I call you know fear wrapped in a cloud and so people go to whatever that cloud is you know for them and that future piece so yeah the, their per, their personal life you know so it's about I mean this is that's why psychologists and, and, and health people are so helpful here because we know this stuff this is what we know it's like the basic you know, various people come out with what are the basic needs of life? You know, we need to belong. We need to feel safe. We need to have a sense of, you know, control over our lives, a sense of a future. And so the, the, the climate, the stresses of climate change impact us on all those levels, like safety, sense of the future. People are hostages, you know, as I say, because they, they, they want to make change, but there's so much gridlock and so many problems in the world. Even, even today, I mean, you know, and I'm seeing some clients today, later, and I saw some yesterday. And you know, the the, the Russian invasion in, in Ukraine is, is is dominating people's thoughts. So that's that's mm -hmm. just an, that's just one more stress load that that's out for people, and it's activating things. Right. So, uh, you know, another another thing I say is, you know, in terms of guidelines, you know, when you're talking to people as a as a group leader, as a public educator, as a therapist, it's, these are ecological topics mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, it's ecological. So that everything is linked. So there's an old saying by John Muir, you know, when you pick out one thing on the universe, you find it hitched to everything else. Mm -hmm. So part of the process is people are sort of emptying their, their sack of all the, all the ecological connections that come up. Um, it's their family, it's their place, it's the future, it's the economy, it's their political beliefs, it's their spiritual beliefs. And that's, that's normal. So like, no, validating that as well, like this right. is ecological. So you're going to feel a number of things. It's going to be linked to a lot of things. It gets overwhelming. How do we sort of stay in the moment and start to prioritize? Um, there's this upside down pyramid image I use with people. Um, it's like they come in and there's this pyramid over the top of their head with the with the apex mm -hmm. pointing toward them and it's just infinite it goes up and up and up and it's all the issues they're trying to balance and their resources seem very inadequate yeah. to, to the task uh, and i kind of you know say let's flip the pyramid around and put it on its mm -hmm. base and let's work on your base like what are you doing each day what are your responsibilities what's your life like how do you take care of yourself and that that's a grounding kind of exercise and then people start to prioritize okay what is what is most important about this? Like, where does it plug in for me? And it's a process. You can't do it all in a few minutes, but that's sort of the gist of engaging with people around this sort of stuff. I, I love it. I'm going to have to borrow that analogy too, or just that, mm -hmm. that exercise with people. As I hear you reflect on what people tend to talk about, even with that first area of question around what you're feeling, what's coming up, I, I can't help but think about having just moved to Portland in the summer of 2020. And that preceded one of the worst fires and climate disasters in the state, at least mm -hmm. that I know of in recent history. Mm -hmm. it, it scarred these beautiful national forests. It took people's homes and it literally hid the sun for days. Mm -hmm. Uh, walking outside, it hurt to breathe. And we were, of course, going through COVID already. Yeah. But here we were with our masks, you know, oh, all too convenient. 
we were already kind of prepared for this and yet it was hazardous still to be outside for more than minutes. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm reflecting on that because it was powerfully jarring. And I, I know that not just from my firsthand experience, but the clients that I worked with, it was, it was truly dark, both emotionally, psychologically, but also literally physically out there in the external world. It was dark. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, as I think about that example and your work, what you know about the, the impacts and the effects of climate change and these crises on, on our well-being. Yeah. Well, you're speaking to a time that was really, I think, a loss of innocence in the Northwest here. I know that's how Absolutely. I personally experienced it. I've been living in the Northwest in some form since the late 1980s, um, originally from back East Buffalo, New York is where I'm from, Western New York mm -hmm. State. And, um, you know, um, I think, you know, there's so, so many different um, juicy theoretical lenses to put onto this. And one is, you know, one is a, as, as, as existential lens, you know, in terms of existential psychology, existential therapy, you know, and um, people use existential in a couple of ways. One is, you know, one in, 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 in the news, they often talk about existential in this, you know, black and white way, like it will kill us or not, you know, uh -huh. existential, like a meteor will destroy our planet. But I think for psychologists, we get into that other side of existential, which is meaning and mm -hmm. what does it mean to be alive and who are we and the future and all that sort of stuff. And I think that that um, the climate change, you know, I don't think humans are going to go extinct. Personally, I think we're going to we're going to make it through the next 100 years in some form based on my understanding of of the science. And but it's going to be a rough road and it's going to mm -hmm. cause a lot of existential angst and loss for people. Um, but when I did research with, with Susan Clayton and the climate change task force a few years ago, um, you know, just to get a, another framework here, um, you know, at, at that time it was already clear, you know, there's a good body of research on disasters and disasters typically have direct impacts and indirect impacts. So like, you know, a, a traditional disaster, like a flood or an earthquake will have the epicenter and the, the and the acute you know, impacts at the epicenter. And then there's this bullseye image where at the farther you go out, the, the less impacts. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the chronic and secondary impacts are what happens days, months, years after right. in terms of rebuilding and migrants and refugees. And, and of course, it, all these disasters impact people. I mean, everyone gets impacted, but people with less privilege and the marginalized mm -hmm. communities bear the brunt and then they tend to have the hardest time rebuilding. So the chronic impacts tend to really compound existing social inequalities and all this sort of stuff. Um, and then the third, this third, you know, I was really interested in this third level, which I propose and again, was seen as kind of speculation, like there's just impacts of watching this from afar, like just sure. from a distance observing it and knowing that it's coming and taking in all the scientific information and, and understanding that we're, you know, gridlock and you get this kind of Titanic experience where I look around the ship that's going to hit an iceberg and we can't do anything about it. And that's, you know, that was, I was influenced by eco-psychology and some of the thinkers in that area that were really looking at in a more radical way, like what is humans relationship with nature and the natural world? And in some ways, how is, how is psychology missed, missed the boat on that kind of in a reductionist way. And so I was really influenced by, by a lot of those, those, those thinkers and um, kind of empowered me to want to stand up for this third level of, of impacts. 
Um, and now, you know, unfortunately, history has caught up with me. And, uh, you know, people are like, yeah, obviously, there's these impacts. We've all felt yeah. it. we've all noticed it. It's all over the news. Um, so anyway, those those three impacts are helpful now even to categorize. And so the Northwest things you're talking about became direct impacts. Oh, right. these are not I'm not just watching something happening in in the Arctic or, um, you know, in, 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 in a Pacific island. You know, this is in my my right. You know, I have climate refugees. My, you know, literally my neighbors were asking, can, can my relatives stay in your basement? Cause they're, they're moving mm -hmm. out from the fires that are, you know, 50 miles away. And so, and then of course, as you, as you say, the smoke and even the potential yeah. of having to, having to um, evacuate East side of Portland, if the right. if things had changed. And so I think the big, the big shift in the last couple of years, that's really brought drawing, brought drawing in a broad range of psychologists and therapists is this, is this shift. I call it a, a like a singularity it's like well the the impacts are now coming together so the direct the indirect yeah are all like happening right where i am so i am sort of in the epicenter now um and unfortunately that's that is going to happen for people around you know the east coast it doesn't matter now we're in the u.s you can find epicenters for this um and you know that includes the practitioners that includes the psychologists that includes the researchers the teachers um and so that's been the tip over in the last few years Thomas, when you talk about it, I, I think about the author you uh, you, you co-authored, I think, a, a paper with uh, Dr. Clayton in American mm -hmm. Psychologist on this topic. I, I think you're alluding yeah. to it a little bit as you talk through that. And yeah. I think that was published, what, uh, 10 years ago or more? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I think... I think um... Uh, the task force was 2009 that I was on. There's a new task force uh, that's out now in the APA that's going to have a report soon. But that, that original was 2009, I think. And I think that paper was 2011. Okay. So, yeah. So 10, 11 years at this point. And I'm thinking back to, well, where was I at at that point? Well, I was just actually about to enter graduate school personally. Mm -hmm. And just about to take this step to, to becoming a psychologist. And mm -hmm. when I hear you talk about that, that latter wave of considerations, what comes to mind is the, the concept of secondary trauma. Mm -hmm. That we often talk about secondary traumas for psychologists, for, for various providers of services of healthcare when they hear, see something that happened to someone else. And that's what comes to mind when I hear you talk through this, Thomas, is much of my exposure to this topic of climate change and the climate crisis was secondary, or it felt that way, even if, even if I was getting affected by it at the time. Mm -hmm. And if we reflect back on it, I can say, oh, yeah, well, there are impacts of it. The quality of my air that I was breathing back then was still impacted by what mm -hmm. has happened thus far. And mm -hmm. now, as you talk through it, and having lived through it, my gosh, how that's shifted over the last mm -hmm. decade. That yeah. so much of this, and for so many of my clients too, has become a primary trauma. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> and there's an age cohort effect. One of the exercises that I've done with groups in, in the pre-COVID days when you could do big group exercises. Um, sure. Um, you know, it's just have people line up um, you know, by what age they were when they really started to learn about climate change and what it was. And if you have a, a mixed age group where you have young people and elders, it's really interesting because at a certain point, um, 
you know, people become aware, you know, if you're older, say like you're over 40 or something like that, it, there's, there's going to be a point where you didn't really know what you hadn't heard about climate change. You weren't aware of it. Uh, and then you become either just nominally aware of it. Like I know this thing. And then, but then you might actually become educated about it. Like, Oh, this is a, you understand like anything else you under you start to understand it. Um, and, um, you know, um, it becomes more relevant and you, um, you know, and, or you have an impact or something like that. But, you know, when you talk to young people, if you go, if you go down the lines where the younger mm -hmm. people at a certain point, well, they've always known about climate change because right. it's been, you know, it's been there, you know, they were born after Al Gore's, you know, uh, is, you know, inconvenient truth, you know, right. or something like that. And so it gives you a sense of how it plays differently for different people. And yeah. some people are still wrapping their head around it or even have the luxury of maybe being in denial or skeptical. Is this really that big of a deal compared to other, other issues I've, I've dealt with in my life of young people, they're born into it. And um, yeah. so that's, that's just an interesting sort of to put yourself in different people's shoes is helpful. I think in, in, in terms of like working with people and understanding politics and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah. An analogy that comes to my mind is digital nativism. Like, I've mm -hmm. always had the internet. I've always had access to smartphones that generationally and cohort based changes that that has shifted how people are exposed to knowledge and information. And I'm hearing the same is true in the context of this climate crisis. There was something really interesting that you mentioned, Thomas, a, a few moments ago about how climate impacts us differently, that there's something of a a consequence to justice or equality or equity there. And I'm curious to hear you talk more about how climate change may affect different populations. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost a cliche now, but you know, uh, in the sense that it's, it's, it's said, but we need to keep saying it and keep fleshing out is that, you know, you know, you know, all environmental issues are social justice issues, you know, because, Again, when you have the impacts of climate change, we always have buffers, you know, there's a buffer um, for everyone. And it's in either the quality and amount and, and thickness of your buffer depends on your privilege and your placement in society and things like that. Absolutely. So, you know, um, you or I might have the ability to, to rebuild or to, you know, retrofit our house to make, make it more capable of withstanding an earthquake or a you know, climate problems or whatever, and other people, other people don't. So the, the, the impact, the same impact weighs differently on, on different people. And then that just activates just historic divisions and historic grievances and things like that. And so it is really, climate change does really mean different things to different people. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's this blind man and elephant con you know, problem where like one person says it's, it's the economy, it's capitalism. Or one person says it's, it's, um, it's our consciousness and we don't love the earth. And we're, you know, it's, it's about balance and, and other people says, you know, other people say it's about, you know, it's about technology and we just had the proper, you know, and it's all yeah. true. These are all yeah. true. And for some people say, well, this is about survival and this is about justice. And this is about my, mm -hmm. my, you know, my people and my neighborhood and things like that. Um, and so, um, um, 
it is a multi it's a multicultural it, it, it requires multicultural competency right to put it in you know mm -hmm. kind of common psychology language and it really is hard to do it's not that easy to do because we have our blind spots we just don't know what it's like mm -hmm. to we take things for granted access to nature i mean one of the one of the big um concepts that I use in my training with with therapists is about environmental identity. This is concept of mm. environmental identity. It's how we think of ourselves, our self concept in relation to nature and the natural world. And it's, and it's, you know, similar to other forms of identity, we have we have our gender identity, our cultural identity, our ethnic identity, our socioeconomic identity. And you know, that's, it's, it's a very, um, current idea to be aware of all these kinds of identities and to know and value other people's, you know, and help people to develop and express their identity and be empowered. And so the same with environmental identity, you know, we have an environmental identity and I love sharing the concept because most people have, many people have not heard of it. It's like a new concept have, to them. Yeah. I'm eager to um, hear, like, I don't even know what of, an example would be. Yeah. It, it comes out when earlier you mentioned environmental psychology, right? And so that's, you know, you know, people have studied this kind of stuff for many years, but it's been in these pockets, these academic pockets, uh, environmental psychology, which is, just, you know, for many years, people have studied people's relationship to place and architecture and how to build, you know, satisfying buildings and effective green spaces on people's mental health and their nervous system. And that's, there's all kinds of rich research in that area. Uh, and, you know, conservation psychology is another sub area that studied, you know, zoos and people's relationship with animals and why they want to conserve resources or why they want to protect animals. And a lot of, you know, interesting social psychology research. And that's where the environmental identity concept comes from is from the social psychology folks that are saying well there people have identities that they enact and it, and it influences why they do certain behaviors and what groups they join and what news they read and how they believe you know they believe in the world um i mean a, a very simple you know assessment for environmental identity is just two circles one circle for self and one circle for nature mm -hmm. and then you depend are those circles very par, far apart are they close? Are they touching? Are they slightly overlapping? Are they totally overlapping? And mm -hmm. that's a way for people to express themselves in relation to nature. Some people feel like nature is quite separate from them. Other people feel right. like there's a relationship. Other people feel like there's some intermingling. And for some people, it's more of a, a transpersonal or interbeing. Like I am nature, like nature and mm -hmm. I are, are the same, you know, mm -hmm. in a systemic sort of ecological way. Um, and so it's a great consciousness raising thing like oh yeah i have an environmental identity Absolutely. and then and then that leads to you know that becomes a basis for, for for therapy and for growth because okay how do you want to understand your identity where do you where did you get this identity from how do you um how do you start making it more uh, explicit instead of just implicit um you know again it, it leads to us to talk about people's family of origin and what they learned from their parents and their culture and where they grew up and it explains why people have schisms in their family because their environmental identity changes mm -hmm. and they start to adopt different views than their family, say around meat eating or climate change or anything like that. And so it's a super useful concept and it's not that hard to understand. I mean, you get it right now, just made by me explaining yeah. it. It, it totally yeah, makes absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I love that this is a conversation that you can bring into the therapy space and it has to do with identities and it similarly to the existential concept of like, what is our meaning? What's our place? What's our purpose? 
And, and it fits very much in line with that. And I even think about the overlap, perhaps, of even some acceptance and commitment style approaches that are values driven. Mm-hmm. You know, what are your values around the environment? Where'd you learn those values? And how do you apply those values to actions in your life? And you know, Thomas, as you talk through it, I, uh, even in our conversation in a broader sense today, I'm hearing the, the kind of the building blocks and the foundation for this, this really exciting work. Mm-hmm. And it, on the podcast, the clinical consult, we're always interested in distilling down these kind of sometimes heady topics, which I think you've been really helpful about keeping it kind of grounded, mm-hmm. but sometimes heady topics and saying, hey, how do we turn this into something that's actionable for us as health service psychologists? What do we take away as health service psychologists about what we can do in the therapy space? And I think you're helping us kind of see that naturally as we talk today. I'm also curious what, what else the might go into this kind of like action or the do category of, of this work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, you know, like with a lot of psychology work, you know, we have to under, understand our own self and our own history and our own um, baggage and things, particularly if we're, we're trying to help other people and, and hold space for other people. So we, you know, we kind of have to, um, we have to um, fill our cup personally, like, okay, what is my background? What is, what is my experience with this? And then we need to empty our cup so we can be ready for the person right. to fill, you know, but if you, we, if we haven't done that own, that, that pre-work, we're not even sure what we're supposed to be getting from the person, um, <laughs> you know? And so I think, you know, that the, the three-step thing that I use when I'm supervising or, or trying to train folks is is you know assessing your own environmental identity first your beliefs your experience and your values like you say and it is very much true that act uh, act um principles are quite useful here um so what are your values what's your uh, like for example an exercise i use is just a simple environmental timeline like a lifeline timeline of your life like what are significant experiences that influenced your sense of yourself in relation to nature and the natural world right. and where you grew up did you have pets did you visit places what was your education like and it's just a general life timeline uh, did you travel did you have any losses or traumas so this is also important to recognize that this can be troubling for people and um yeah. and it does we talked about emotions but like it really does bring up emotions so we have to be careful like it can bring up very troubling emotions for people including fear and tears and um people sometimes have past traumas associated with nature and natural world or the outdoors so you have to be careful depending on what population of people you're working with mm-hmm. um but you know assessing our own our own environmental identity and our own our own sense of self um and you know using exercises like the timeline or i do um what i call an eco genogram which is essentially a family tree diagram that's focused on all the environmental identities of all the people in our system which is really enlightening um and different kinds of things like that and then we adapt then the next thing is to adapt what we already know therapeutically like sex acceptance and commitment therapy or existential therapy or any, any I, I think almost every therapeutic tradition has something to offer here. Obviously, much of the short-term stabilization for people is, co- is cognitive behavioral work. We help people to get, get stabilized, you know, mind, body, health psychology, stress reduction. So how do we adapt the tools? We, we don't need to learn anything new. We already have this mm-hmm. whole tool belt of things. So how do we start to adapt it? in this context. And then the application, it depends like, Oh, what is my population? Where am I working? 
sometimes it's a pretty easy shift to start saying, I'm going to start adding this to my list of specialties on my website. Like I also help people to think about environmental concerns, you know, and, and, and some people are really wanting to more specialize in this kind of thing, but you know, the application depends. And I do tell people, you know, not every psychologist or therapist needs to become an eco therapist, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of work to do in the world. I mean, there's a lot of places to plug in and help. Right. Um, and so it's all ecological because everything is hitched together. So if you're helping people that are unhoused or you're helping people that are dealing with trauma from some other issue that then keep doing that by all means. Um, yeah. But, you know, start to also be aware that these, these climate and environmental issues are just valid concerns and they just need to be part of the part of the assessment, just like anything else. You know, it really is, is just talk about them in a matter of fact way. Like, um, are, do you find, are you, are you stressed about global issues or climate change or environmental issues or how does it affect you? And just be curious and just, just like you would ask about anything else. I love how you talk about it because frankly, even before we got on for our episode today, it was a mystery. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's still a something where I'm, I'm trying to learn more about it every day, but you, as you talk through it in our, our time today, I feel like, whoa, this is so much more accessible than I made it out to be. In my mind, I made it out to be this, this whole area of, of work that, that, oh my gosh, it's going to take a ton of time for me to wrap my head around it. I'm going to, what am I going to, I'm going to have to adapt or my theoretical approaches or, and, and I really appreciate Thomas, you linking it back to much of what we learn in graduate school, much of our teachings and that what we're doing is talking about it then mm -hmm. and bringing it into that space and using the tools that we may already be equipped with. And as you talk about it, wow, you know, thinking back to earlier in our conversation today, the secondary trauma is becoming primary traumas or, or primary victimization or survivorship and thinking, wow, we might have seen this, this conversation in certain spaces and places. And my hunch is that we're going to see that more in those shorter term therapies, just because that might be the only place that someone has access to care in that moment. So this mm -hmm. conversation, it feels like it's going to be more present and more with us over time. I'm, I'm curious though, as we wrap up and I just want to recognize, you know, we're short on time for her talk today, but as we wrap up, I'm, I'm thinking about a critical component. I think you've, 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 you've sold me. I, I want to be able to, to do this work. Well, I want to be able to have these conversations with my clients and improve what I do and talk about. However, I'm, I'm cognizant that there is a contingent of psychologists and certainly outside of the field of psychology that think, why are psychologists talking about climate change with clients? Why are they the ones to talk about this? Shouldn't, you know, someone else be talking about it? Shouldn't it be public health? Shouldn't it be some other scientist, not psychologists talking about climate change with clients? I'm curious what you would say to that or that, that more critical kind of viewpoint about this, this area. Yeah, I know it's interesting. And I, again, I think given the age cohort, like I talked, as you get, as you get yeah. toward younger psychologists, they don't, that question is less uh -huh. necessary or less relevant because they're climate na climate natives. Yeah. Um, but it does speak to a traditional um, disciplinary split. So this is an interdisciplinary area. 
Uh, and, and traditionally there would be, even when I went to graduate school, um, which was in the late nineties, you know, um, I, I struggled to find a niche for myself because I had this mm -hmm. background doing wilderness therapy and I'd done environmental work. And typically if you'd gone to a program, they would say, Oh, that's interesting. The environmental studies department is down the hall, right. you know, and so the more traditional of a psychology program and, and even less now, but even in the last several years, I've noticed a shift, even in the APA divisions, for example, you know, the clinical and the counseling would see, oh, this isn't, this is an environmental division issue. Uh, uh -huh. And it's, it's just, it's just, in some ways, um, it's almost a moot question now, because I feel like things are moving on so, so quickly that people are going to be yeah. either, either going to be, um, brought up to speed or they're just going to always never quite get it um and so i try I try not to get like i tell people pick your battles you know in this kind of work you know pick your battles but it does there's a, a, a in, inside your question there's another question about like political activism and action and that i think underlies some of that like this is really more of a social issue environmental issues and so that's that's a juicy question too and i think all the listeners have to think about their own position here but i to me, there's always a critical tension between, you know, what I call, you know, adjustment and liberation. So like in all therapies, I don't care what therapy you're doing, like adjusting to a system as it is, or changing the system, sure. you know, or, or rejecting the system or changing it, you know, so whether it's an unhealthy workplace or a family situation or a social, social justice issue, you know, and so different practitioners are going to line up differently on the adjustment versus liberation spectrum and so people you know find i tell people you know there's a lineup and there's the front line in terms of direct really direct political action and there's a lot of places to to be in the line you don't have to only be on the front line you could be supporting people on the front line you could be you know doing messaging you could be right. you could be helping people with other aspects of their life and so um i do think um everyone has to has to kind of think about their own you know activist activism you know, um, tolerance and question and things like that. So I think that, that, that underlies some of this, this kind of like, should we be doing this or not? And that I can't, you know, you and I can't answer that question, but, and I do, um, you know, Martin Luther King, when he spoke to the APA, right. And as you might have, might know, he talked about creative maladjustment, you know, before he, before he was killed, you know, like it's, it's, you know, how about not adjusting to a system, you know, is not healthy. And so, yeah. um, that's an active question in our society right now. And we're, we can't help but be involved in it because our, 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 we are, and our clients are. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I want to, I want to end by sharing a, a deep appreciation, not only for your time today, but your scholarship in general. Mm, I know thanks. we referred to the, that American psychologist article. I, I know it might be ironic for listeners that, that this is a heavy topic and it's an important topic. We've talked about some of the, the emotions that can arise when we even think about it. But your article with Dr. Clayton actually brought me hope. And, mm -hmm. and here's why. Um, you highlighted a, a small, uh, what, what might have almost been like a, a pilot study almost, a small study of Norwegians, rural Norwegians, that I think was from 2006. Mm -hmm. And this study and the people involved speak volumes about the possibility for change, both there and here. Mm -hmm. Over the last few decades, Norway has undergone a massive transformation in their infrastructure, their energy use. Many citizens 
have advocated for changes here, meaningful reductions in carbon production. And yet those rural Norwegians when originally studied were very much um, against it when they first heard the idea of changing their energy infrastructure. And yet through their processes of change, by looking at this differently, by examining what we now know, they have been able to prepare themselves in a way that I think many countries um, could be inspired by. And it mm -hmm. makes me think, wow, it's eerily similar to where we are here today in America. And yet it leaves me with some optimism that sentiment can change over time, that we can improve what we're going through. So Thomas, I, I really sincerely want to say this again, but thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to, to be here with us on the podcast today. Thanks, Sam. I, I love talking about this and I love getting the word out. And I think we did a good job in sort of opening the door to people Absolutely. and making them curious. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I'm Dr. Samuel Lustgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education.